countries listed here, Nigeria is number 12, Saudi Arabia is number 14, India is number 17, Egypt, number 22, Myanmar, number 23, and Jordan, right next to Israel there, is number 27. These countries that do all have that in common. Every year, the Open Doors organization, headquartered in England, anybody ever heard of Brother Andrew? God Smuggler, right? Read the book? Wow, we've got to get more copies of the book in the library so kids can read that. Uh, God Smuggler, he was a he, Dutch man who took Bibles back behind the Iron Curtain when communism went as it was at its peak and uh, risked his life in order to do that. He started this organization, Open Doors Organization. It's headquartered in England now. And every year they publish something they call the World Watch List. This is a list of the top 50 countries in the world when it comes to Christian persecution. The annual list studies pressures on private, family, community, national, and church areas of life, plus levels of violence, in order to rank the top 50 countries where, quote, Christians face the most persecution, end quote. The countries on the screen are the top 10 as numbered. The other countries are mentioned down the list a bit. Here's a couple more you might be interested in. China, might wonder where they come in on that list. They're number 33. Turkey, the modern home to the seven churches of Asia Minor that we're studying here currently in Revelation. Turkey's number 45. And you might be surprised to find out that Mexico, our neighbor to the south, where around 95% of the population profess some kind of faith in Jesus Christ, Mexico is number 40 on the list. The only other Western Hemisphere country to make, it, make the list is Colombia at number 46. The United States hasn't made the top 50 on that list. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why am I telling you all this? Religious persecution of Christians is on the rise worldwide. And you probably knew that already, but think about it in these terms. Your brothers and sisters in Christ who live in the countries on this list are more at risk than ever before to face persecution in some form this year. Even if the country's not on that list, they may be at greater risk. Now, this may mean something as simple as a lost job or having to move. It may mean having their church desecrated or burned. It may mean being beaten or raped or having a family member beaten or raped because of your faith. It may even mean being tortured and killed because they are followers of Jesus Christ, just like you and I are. The Open Door Organization says that at a bare minimum, more than 7,000 Christians were martyred in 2015 worldwide, and that doesn't include North Korea or parts of Syria and Iraq, where where accurate numbers are difficult to obtain. If you would like to download and read the Open Doors report about these things, I have put a link on the church website right there on the main page. You'll see it down below, New Sermon Series and Revelation. There's a, a, list there, a link there. Click here, too. And you can download that, that report. It's an entire report. It's not just that list. So what would you tell those Christians who are going to experience these types of persecution in the coming year? If we could line them up right here, a number of them, And you knew what they were going to go through in the coming year. You knew the kind of persecution they were going to face. And you knew that some of them were going to be killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. What would you tell them? This is the message to the church in Smyrna. 
the second of the seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation. They're already being persecuted there as John writes that letter. And it's only going to get worse to them. John writes this relatively brief message. Revelation 2, start in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, before we get into the message to the church at Smyrna, let's talk a little bit about the city. Uh, Here we see the, the seven churches of Asia Minor that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Last week we talked about Ephesus right here. And you see Smyrna right here, 35 or 40 miles roughly north uh, of Ephesus. And, and Smyrna uh, has a large harbor. It's actually kind of a double harbor. There was an outer harbor here where the ships, the large ships, could come in more. This inner harbor here could be closed off if they desired. And uh, there's not really a, a lot left of, of Smyrna, uh, the ancient city, because the modern city of Izmir, Turkey, has largely been built over the remains of Smyrna. And Smyrna was a large city, though, in its day, possibly between 200,000 and 300,000 inhabitants. Today, Izmir is home to between 2 and 3 million people, third largest city in all of Turkey. Smyrna was a city of commerce, surpassing even Ephesus in the amount of trade conducted there. And these arches were part of the agora, that's the Greek word that just means marketplace. These arches were part of the marketplace of Smyrna, actually supporting uh, what came over them, but uh, there could have been uh, businesses here as well. Running water was supplied to the marketplace area. It's still flowing there today. If you can see that right there, I know the picture's not real clear, uh, but there's running water in this picture, and it comes down, and there's a channel in the, in the middle of the street. That water still flows. The marketplace was huge, encompassing the entire area that you see here and even more. The name Smyrna means myrrh producing myrrh the fragrant resinous gum best known as one of the gifts brought by the magi to the baby jesus was produced at smyrna that may not be the only place but that was one place wine was also a major product of smyrna and there was a large temple there to dionysius the god of wine like all the cities of asia emperor worship was practiced there as well as the worship of various pagan gods these are the remains of the temple of athena in Smyrna, the goddess of wisdom and military victory. I'm pretty sure that's not Athena right there. Yeah, I I stole somebody's vacation picture off the internet. That's what you get for putting stuff on the internet, right? Smyrna was a wealthy city with wide paved streets, a large library, a theater almost as large as the one at Ephesus, and schools devoted to science and medicine, such as this one here. Smyrna boasted to be the, uh, the birthplace of Uh, the author of the Iliad, uh, Homer, if you've ever read that, they they claim that he came from there in Smyrna. Smyrna was described as the fairest city of its region, 
sometimes referred to as the lovely city, or the crown of Ionia, that was its district there, or even the ornament of Asia. Smyrna seemed to have everything going for it. But the Christians in Smyrna didn't share the prosperity and ease of life of the rest of the citizenry there. Let's take a look at what Jesus has to say to the Christians in Smyrna. Today's message is titled, Do Not Fear. In verse 8, Jesus identifies himself. It begins, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, Now, in each of the messages to the seven churches, we see Jesus identifying himself using descriptions that are the same as or very similar to the way he described himself in chapter 1. In verse 8 here of chapter 2, Jesus uses two descriptions of himself that come from Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. He calls himself the first and the last. For these Christians, who, as we will see here shortly, were absolutely destitute, and in the middle of suffering that was about to get worse, Jesus provides the reminder that this life is not permanent, nor is it all that there is to our existence. When Jesus calls himself the first and the last, he tells the suffering Christians of Smyrna that he was there for them before their suffering began, and he will be there for them after their suffering is complete, as well as through it all. Now that's something that we might say to Christians who are persecuted today. It might even be something that we need to remind ourselves about when, when we come to times of suffering or persecution. It's only temporary. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Those who are suffering, and to some degree or another, that may include you today. Maybe it doesn't, but it might. To those who are suffering, or who will suffer, I'd say we need to maintain the eternal perspective. Look beyond this life and focus on the life to come, so that you can endure whatever comes your way. Because that's really the key. If you focus on your circumstances now, and what things are like now, and how bad everything is right now, you're going to be more likely to give up. But if you can maintain the eternal perspective, it's easier to say, I see beyond my circumstances. I see beyond my pain. I see beyond the suffering. And I see what's to come. The second description Jesus uses here of himself. Who was dead and has come to life. There are probably several reasons why Jesus used this description of himself to the Christians in Smyrna. Earlier, we mentioned Dionysius, the god of wine. Part of the mythology surrounding Dionysius included the idea that he could bring people back from the dead, or even that he himself had died and come back to life. In their celebration or worship of him or whatever it was, they would sometimes reenact this, have a pageant of some sort in which Dionysius dies and then comes back to life. Jesus reminded the Christians in Smyrna that he... Jesus really had died 
and then he really had risen from the dead. Jesus is the truth compared to the myth of Dionysius. Another reason Jesus may have used this description of himself might be that the city of Smyrna enjoyed the reputation of a city that had died and come back to life. As a city, Smyrna died around 600 B.C. But then, more than 300 years later, in 290 B.C., it was reborn to even greater magnificence than it had before. And people who lived in Smyrna were pretty proud of that. But a city is just a collection of buildings put together by a group of people. It doesn't really have life. Jesus' resurrection involved real death, followed by real life, something so much greater than anything used to describe a city. But I think the most important reason that Jesus describes himself as the one who was dead and has come to life has to do with the rest of the message to the church in Smyrna. Some of the Christians in Smyrna were literally going to die for their faith. Jesus wanted to remind them that he had been there, but that their death, like his death, wasn't going to be permanent. What do you say to a Christian who faces death on account of being a Christian? I think we say the same thing that Jesus said to Martha before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus said this about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Death is not the end. And Jesus died and rose again both to show us the truth of that statement as well as to provide life after death for us. We go to verse 9. And as he does for all the seven churches, Jesus states that he knows what those Christians are going through. He knows what their lives are like. He knows everything. So he certainly knows the problems they faced. For the Christians in Smyrna, that meant that Jesus knew their tribulation. And what was that exactly? I mean, Smyrna is a wealthy, prosperous city. Wouldn't that be a great place to live for everyone? One of the things that Smyrna was known for, of course, was emperor worship. Ephesus was known for that too. But in Smyrna, there was another wrinkle to that practice that I couldn't find any reference to in regard to Ephesus. Maybe it's there and I just missed it. But at least once a year in Smyrna, every citizen was required to burn incense at the temple of Caesar and to declare Caesar is Lord. They had to do that. For most of the people in Smyrna, that was no problem. But for the Christians there who accepted Jesus and Jesus only as Lord, this was a big problem. Those who burned the incense and who said Caesar is Lord received a certificate that proved they had fulfilled the requirement. And once you got, had your certificate, you were a citizen in good standing. You could uh, go worship at that point any other god or goddess that you chose. But you had to say Caesar is Lord first. You could engage in business. You could be involved in the various civic organizations. You could even participate in the city government. But without a certificate, you were regarded as an outlaw. You would have a difficult time getting or keeping a job. You couldn't get a license to do business in the agora, the marketplace. And if the authorities chose to do so, you could be jailed and put to death because you didn't have the certificate, because you didn't say, you didn't burn the incense and didn't say Caesar is Lord. 
And that probably explains the next thing Jesus said that he knew about the Christians in Smyrna. He says, I know your poverty. In the New Testament, there are a couple different words that are used and translated as poverty. One of them means having barely enough to survive, having the basic necessities of life, and nothing more. That's not the word that's used here. The other word for poverty means beggarly, not having even what is necessary to sustain life at the most basic level. This is the word used here when Jesus tells the Christians in Smyrna that he knows their poverty. They were destitute, having nothing, probably scrounging for food wherever they could and possibly not succeeding. Some of them may well have been starving to death. The non-Christians wouldn't dare to help them for fear of losing their own certificates. And the Christians didn't have the resources to help each other. Life for Christians in Smyrna was very bleak. Jesus inserts a phrase here that seems contradictory to what he just said. After telling him that he knew their poverty, Jesus says to the Christians, and I don't know about your translation, but in the New American Standard translation, it's in parentheses, but you are rich. I know your poverty. I know how destitute and beggarly and poor and scrounging for food you are, but you're rich. Well, he certainly didn't mean with the wealth of the world. I think Jesus was saying that by their faithfulness to Jesus, the Christians there had laid up for themselves treasures in heaven, like Jesus describes in, in Matthew. Eternal treasure is always preferable to earthly treasure. And isn't that something that you would tell people facing persecution today? You are rich with a wealth that no one can take away. When you measure the riches by the right standard, you are rich in Christ. Jesus said, I know this too. I know about the blasphemy of those who call themselves Jews and are not. The Christians in Ephesus Even though Jesus said, you're rich in me, I think is what he was saying, they still had to deal with their abject poverty for the time being. It wasn't getting any better. And as if that weren't enough, the church in Smyrna faced additional opposition. There was a considerable Jewish population in Smyrna. We don't know the exact nature of the opposition they provided for the Christians there, but we can guess. This is a guess. Probably at least some of the Christians in Smyrna were Jews who had converted to Christianity. If you look at the history of the church in the New Testament, that always causes trouble. Okay, Even though uh, from the very beginning, the first Christians were Jews, everywhere Paul went on his missionary journeys, uh, he, he would go to the synagogue first, and he would preach there, and the first converts in all those cities were Jews, and then he, Paul would preach to the Gentiles, and they had Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Well, probably at least some of the Christians in Smyrna were Jews who had converted to Christianity. The other Jews in Smyrna likely resented that. And they exposed the Christians there when they had opportunity, causing those Christians to be jailed or killed. Now, how is it that these Jews weren't being persecuted like the Christians were? Because I read this and I thought, how how come they escaped? How come they're not just as destitute and just as persecuted as the Christians? Don't they believe in God? Wouldn't they have a hard time saying Jesus is Lord? Or excuse me, Caesar is Lord? Well, maybe it has to do with Jesus' description of them as those who say they are Jews and are not. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. Do you suppose it's possible, maybe even likely, that these Jews were burning the incense? And saying Caesar is Lord so they could get their certificates? 
perhaps they had rationalized that in their minds as being something they could do so they could function in society, but they didn't really mean it. Now these Christians were refusing to burn the incense, and the Jews knew they were right not to do so. But instead of taking a stand with them and suffering the consequences, they turned on the Christians, maybe in an attempt to get rid of them. Now that's somewhat speculative, but it sure sounds reasonable to me. Whatever the case, the Jews in Smyrna were not making life any easier for the Christians there. And Jesus knew that too. I don't know about you. I'll ask, do you ever feel like nobody, not even God, not even Jesus, knows what you're going through? You ever felt that way? I felt that way. Maybe you felt that way. Believe and remember that he understands what your life is like, both good and bad. And just because he doesn't instantly remove every problem from your life doesn't mean that he doesn't care. He cared enough to die for you taking your place on the cross so you could ultimately live. Jesus knows, and Jesus cares. I think I would tell someone that I knew was facing persecution, perhaps persecution to death, I think I would tell them that. Jesus knows what that's like, and Jesus cares. He may not take that away from you, but don't think he doesn't know and that he doesn't understand and that he doesn't care. Well, verse 10 says, suffering is coming. He says, some of you will be cast into prison Even with the tribulation the Christians in Smyrna had already experienced, more was coming. For some of them, perhaps because they didn't have the emperor worship certificate, prison was in their future. Other Christians, like the Apostle Paul, had been imprisoned for their faith. And now that particular form of persecution was coming to Smyrna. Jesus says that the devil is responsible for this. It reminds me, when we get wrapped up in thinking that there are people that are against us and that there are people that are the enemy. No, Ephesus chapter 6, verse 12 says this. Ephesus six twelve says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Peter told the recipients of his letters, Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, to devour. That's who our real opposition is. It's Satan. When the Christians in Smyrna were put in prison, they would be able to look past the bars, past the walls, past the jailers, and see the real reason that they were suffering. The real reason was that Satan was opposing them. Jesus says that the reason some of them would be put in prison is so that they would be tested. Now, there's two kinds of testing. There's the kind of testing where you, you put something to the test, you stress it to make sure it'll handle it, or, you, or in the case of people, you put them to the test to strengthen them. You give them an experience that taxes their ability to show them that they really can withstand that, and they come out the other side wiser and stronger. That's not this kind of testing. This is the bad kind of testing. God tests us to strengthen us, to remove impurities from us, even to humble us. But Satan's purpose in testing is to destroy And he tells them, that's why you're being tested. He said there will be ten days of tribulation. Now, this is one of those things. In Revelation, we read it and we say, well, is that literal or is that figurative? And uh, there's all kinds of opinions about that. You can find as many opinions as you can find people want to talk about it. Much has been made here of this duration of this tribulation, the ten days. 
my opinion, the phrase 10 days is probably not literal. I think it probably refers to a particular period or a series of periods of persecution. It may also refer to a relatively brief but measurable period of time. Ten is a number in the Bible that is often used to signify completeness. Jesus may have been saying, your tribulation here will be completed in this period of persecution. And that sounds great. Until you think about, and then what? What's coming next? Jesus doesn't promise them that whatever that ten days means, that the ten days of tribulation will end with their release. He never said they will get to go back to their old lives and start again, trying to scrounge for food or doing whatever. What is the very next thing that he says to them? It has to do with how he wants them to respond to their suffering. But the very next thing that he tells them is be faithful until death. And now I think he's speaking literally. It doesn't matter whether these Christians were going to be in prison for 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 years or 10 decades. No matter what happens, Jesus' instruction to them is be faithful until death. How faithful? Is faithful enough? Faithful until death. How long do we need to remain faithful as Christians? Faithful until death. What is Jesus' expectation of us as we follow him, whether times are good or bad? Faithful until death. As we said before, this is one of the reasons, I think, Jesus emphasized that he himself was the one who was dead and now has come to life. Sometimes people get that idea that death is the end, as in the end of our existence. Many people believe that you live, you die, and there's nothing else after that. I agree that death is the end, but I don't agree that it is the end of our existence. For the Christian, death is the end of suffering. Take a look at the end of the book again. We're going to be peeking at the end from time to time. I told you about that a couple weeks ago. We're going to be peeking at the end from time to time. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. For Christians, death is the end of a lot of things all of them bad. People who are suffering or who are being persecuted or who face the prospect of persecution need to know this. This is something I would tell those people. Those people. You know we're not really just talking about other people here, right? Okay, we're talking about us too. But this is something I would tell them. Be faithful unto death and you'll never suffer again if you're in Christ. The other thing Jesus said about how to respond to suffering, and it is our title of our message this morning, Do Not Fear. Just as Jesus told them, be faithful unto death, and I think the conclusion we draw from that is that death is the end of suffering. Just as we encourage them with that, we can encourage those people 
We can encourage each other. We can encourage ourselves with the words that Jesus used at the beginning of verse 10 to encourage the Christians in Smyrna when he said, do not fear. Over and over in the scriptures, the statement is made that we have nothing to fear if we belong to God. Here's just a few passages. Psalm 27.1. In Psalm 27.1, David said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, says of Jesus, He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? In Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus said this to his disciples, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. This was his message to the Christians in Smyrna. Do not fear. And as there is to every one of these churches, there's a promise. Jesus names two rewards that will be given to those who are faithful unto death. The first is the crown of life. The city of Smyrna saw itself as the crown of Asia. What a small and insignificant thing in comparison to the reward that Jesus promises to the faithful. When we studied James recently, we read these words in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. How do you endure? What's the technique? What's the, the thing that helps you through it? How do you remain faithful until death? I'd say by loving Jesus. When you love Jesus more than you love comfort. When you love Jesus more than you love prosperity. More even than you love food. And especially more than you love yourself. You can endure anything for his sake. Jesus promises the crown of life. You can call it eternal life if you want to, because I think that's what he's talking about. To those who love him and who are faithful until death. And in every message that he gives to each of these seven churches, Jesus closes with two statements. One is, he who overcomes or to him who overcomes. The one who is faithful to Jesus until death can expect some other rewards as well. To the Christians in Ephesus, Jesus said that he would grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the Christians in Smyrna, Jesus says that he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, you could almost stop right there in your study of Revelation because that is the central message of the book in a nutshell. Many people, most people, will experience the first death, death of our physical bodies. There will be a few when Christ returns that won't experience that, but most people will experience the first death. But by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, 
he has provided us with the means of overcoming the second death, which is the eternal separation that will exist between Jesus and all those who die without knowing him as their Lord and Savior. To the one who overcomes, Jesus promises immunity from the second death. You know, earlier we read Luke twelve four. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. We need to read Luke twelve five also. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In my translation, the words one and he and him are all capitalized. Because it's a reference to God. Man can take your physical life, but God is the one who has the authority to cast into hell. And what he said is, if you're outside of Christ, that's where you're headed. Can he make an exception to that? Sure, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to. But has he given us reason to believe that he will? No, he hasn't. And that's the thing that we need to focus on. That's the eternal perspective that we need to cultivate. Whatever happens in this life is only temporary. We have a difficult time maintaining that perspective sometimes. I do. Maybe you do. I think because we want certain things too much. We want prosperity or health or success or fame or power or pleasure so much that we may start compromising our faith in Christ in order to gain one or more of those things. And that's rationalization. That's similar to saying, well, I can burn the incense to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord as long as I don't mean it because it will get me what I want. Compromise. Compromise may get you what you think you want for the moment, but it will never get you what you should really want. This isn't a popular message, by the way. We're talking about putting up a sign out front here uh, in front of the church, something we can put messages on that people can read as they drive or walk by, you know, put it up this way so they can actually see it. They don't have to stop and slow down as they go by. Anyway, do you think we should put up the message after we get the sign up? Do you think we should put up the message, come to Christ and suffer? How about Jesus died for you? Are you ready to die for him now? Maybe something simpler, like there are no padded balsa wood crosses. I'm referring, of course, to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, I want us to look at verses 23 through 26. And I want us to consider this to be the invitation this morning. This is Jesus speaking in the Gospel of Luke. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus invites you to follow him and be his disciple. It will not always be easy. 
it will not always be convenient. You will not always get what you want. You will experience suffering and persecution, and you may even die for your faith. And that's okay. It's okay to lose your life and soul. It's okay to experience temporary hardship in exchange for eternal reward. About 60 years after this letter was written, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, we'd probably think of him as the head elder, was brought before the Roman authorities and told to curse Christ and he would be released. He replied, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The Roman officer replied, Unless you change your mind, I will have you burnt. But Polycarp said, You threaten a fire that burns for an hour and after a while is quenched, for you are ignorant of the judgment to come and of everlasting punishment reserved for the ungodly. Do what you wish. Tradition says that he was burned at the stake and then stabbed to death after the flames failed to reach him. If you are not in Christ today, but you are willing to be committed to him like that, willing to give him everything, including your very life, then I'd ask you to respond to his invitation this morning by coming forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.